All right, we have here Don Thornton. Don does a plethora of things. I'm excited to dive into Don's story. I mean, 20 plus years in real estate, um, known as the short sale guy, also on the tax and asset protection side. A lot of synergy based on what we do professionally as well. So we're going to nerd out here and get really tactical. But thanks so much for coming on, Don. I mean, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely, man. So with that, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about, you know, where you've been, where you're at today, where you're headed. We want to hear a little bit more about your story. I got an, I got an interesting story. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that because in my early 20s, my career path was 100% State Department. I was going to be a diplomat. I was a Russian studies, Russian language major. And that was where I was going to go. And I was at the embassy in Moscow in the late 80s. And then the wall came down, Soviet Union ceased to exist, and I caught the entrepreneurial bug, and I said, goodbye, diplomacy, I want to make money. So I, with no experience whatsoever, I started a business in Moscow, Russia. And let me tell you something, back in the 1990s, that was like the wild east, you know, and uh, I learned, I, mean, I don't know if I, looking back, I'm not sure I would have been successful in, in real estate if I hadn't gone through the School of Hard Knocks and trying to run a business in Moscow. Do you have all your fingers still? <laughs> I do. Okay. But I, I, I will tell you this. I have had the experience of having a mafia guy come to my office in downtown Moscow with a picture of my of our apartment saying, we know where you, we know where your family lives. <laughs> like, okay, Ooh. how are you doing? So that was fun. But, uh, um, you know, Good, all good things come, must come to an end. And so I, I left in 2002, I believe it was. And I, I, I had already got the entrepreneurial bug. I knew I did not want to ever work for someone in my life. And thankfully, I never did. But I knew, strategically speaking, that I'm in Florida. I need, real estate was where you wanted to be. And so, but my issue was I wanted to make sure I didn't want to be a wholesaler. I didn't want to do the typical things. I wanted to have, I wanted to niche down and, and maybe do something that was not the norm. And I heard about, I heard about short sales and the, I, I'm a finance guy, but an MBA in finance. And so the idea that I could go after a property that nobody else wanted, someone who was upside down in their mortgage, you know, and that I could just with my skill negotiate equity out of that. With no risk at all to myself, I said, that's what I want to do. And it took me about a year and a half to really learn it. Failed m numerous times. It got so bad in 2000, at the end of 2003 that I was literally supplementing my uh, diet with um, my 7-Eleven and Shell gas cards, you know, uh, big gulps and uh, big bite hot dogs and, and chips and so all that crap. But I had to keep going sometimes. I left my family in Moscow because I got married and two kids by that time. But I'll tell you what, when I broke through, I broke through big. And since then, I've been doing it through the good times and bad times. I flipped over 3,500 properties in that period of time. And it's been a wonderful life and wonderful, wonderful uh, business. But it's up and down. And it's been down since COVID. So mm. let's, let's pause right there because I, I want our audience to really – grasp this concept. So for those that don't know anything about real estate or short sales specifically, mm -hmm. can you go high level about what a short sale is and then how you go about like what is what happens when things go wrong and how much money is made between these transactions? Like we want to hear all at all, please. All right. So a short sale is when a homeowner owes more than what their house is worth. 
and they cannot sell it with a full payoff because they would have to bring tens of thousands of dollars to the table to close it. Because, you know, but so what you have to do is you get the the mortgage company, the, the, the homeowner's mortgage company to agree to eat the difference. So if someone owes $250,000, the house is only worth two hundred, then we can negotiate a short sale with the lender. And, you know, obviously as an investor, we want to make a profit. So if I know that I can sell that property at 200000 I'm not trying to get it for 200000 That gets me nowhere. I'm trying to get it for one fifty. I'm trying to get it for one sixty in that range. And so if I get the, the bank to agree to that, then I can flip it and flip it for say 190 and so i'm making 30 to 40 thousand dollars on the flip so that's that's really what you do there's no risk to me whatsoever because worse comes to worse if they if they stonewall me on the offer i just walk away so i don't put a nickel of my money into it so you you had talked about experiencing a a ton of failure along the way what did that failure excuse me what did that failure look like for me, it was mostly learning how to do things. And, and uh, back then, we didn't have the internet was not really doing much. I mean, it existed, but no one really. I didn't. I didn't know much about. It. I was a dinosaur. So the the place that a newbie had to go to was a local RIA, you know, the Real Estate Investing Associations. And so I went there, and it was amazing. For nine months, I went through four different mentors. They screwed me over each time. <laughs> You know, so that was the uh, like I, I learned about sharks uh, very uh, early in my career. So and, and it got progressively worse. I mean, I learned a little bit every time I fell. I learned more. So I did get good at knocking on doors and basically telling people, hey, I see your foreclosure. If you're looking, if you're going to walk away from your house, why don't you just give it to me? Let me let me have it. And people said yes. <laughs> now you probably couldn't get away with it, get away with that now, but back then it worked really well. So I just outworked people. It was I worked in four counties, and I made a goal that every single week I was going to hit every single foreclosure in four counties. And eventually it went to six counties. And then of course, as I got more sophisticated, I started doing more phone calls, so I didn't have to, I didn't door knock anymore. But I, now every single county in Florida, we're we're, we're contacting anybody who's in foreclosure. But the failure was more with learning how to do it because people, you know, as I got better at getting people to say yes, homeowners, I didn't know how to do the, the negotiation side. And so I would bring these properties and the agreement was I was going to be paid 25 percent of whatever they made. And they always found a reason to screw me over and, and not give me anything. So but every time I went through another mentor, I learned more and more and more until finally I just say, you know what, I'm going to negotiate myself and see what happens. And. You know, back then it wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. So I had the luxury of kind of the on, on the job training. But, um, you know, I made maybe forty thousand dollars in 2003 and 2004. I made almost a million. So when I broke through, I, ro- I broke through big. Sure. So. That's so. So 2003 all the way up to 2008, nine. I'm curious to know what 2008, looked like for you. I imagine if we're looking for underwater properties, it was a great time for you to you scoop couldn't it up. You swing had... a dead cat without hitting a vacant property that was up right. in the Florida. It was the right. glory times. I made millions in, in the in the Great Recession. It was, a, I mean, yeah. sorry for everybody who suffered, but it was a great time for me. Well, so and it, it's a product of your preparation for that opportunity to present itself. You had to prepare for what five, six, seven years until well, that opportunity rose. You know, two years, up. two, two years. years until I got good at it. Yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. And so when 2008 9 happened, you probably had the infrastructure to absorb all that volume as well, right? And so what about in times where the market's going up when things are going really good? Like what does that world look like? The you know, only, are- I, listen, COVID hit the last month that we had before the foreclosure moratorium was declared was February 2020. That month we brought in 24 upside down houses into the pipeline. That market was strong back then. Mm. Okay. COVID blew me out of the water because no urgency anymore for people. There was no foreclosures. Right. And then it was so lenient that people could stay in their property for years and never pay, they could die, never, never pay a dime on it. So, you know, we, it was just, and then of course that created a false bubble, you know, prices started going and then, and then it just kept going and going and going after, after, you know, COVID was thankfully gone. And so that was the one time I really had to just, you know, say, you know what, I'm stepping back because Mm -hmm. this market is just not good. And, and it's still not that great here in Florida. I mean, tw- I, I checked last last week statewide. There's like 25 short sales going on statewide. Wow. wow. That's not so, that's not enough to make a living. Sure. And so tell us a little bit more about like how today's environment impacts it, because, you know, a lot of people are getting into homes with super low interest rates. Now, interest rates are up, but the equity in their homes are still growing because the yep. market's not going down. So right. where, where do you see that trending and how do you think short sales are going to potentially recover over time? Eventually, markets will always cycle back. It's back and forth. What's unusual is that everybody has been predicting a crash for a number of years now. It never comes. you know. So th- it's astounding how resilient the economy has been. And yeah. not just in real estate, but it just in general. So I made a decision uh, about a year and a half ago. I'm not waiting anymore. So I had to do a, a, you know, listen, when you, when you've, like I said, when you, when you uh, go through the school of hard knocks in Moscow, Russia business, you learn that you, if you don't adapt, you die. And so I did an inventory about what I could do to, you know, continue to make money in a, in a, a level that our, you know, my family was accustomed to. And for me, it was like, okay, I can't do upside down real estate anymore. What can I do? What can I offer? And for me, it was like, you know what? I've got this trust. And as soon as I got the trust, I had not paid a dime in tax to cents and it was all legal. And I thought to myself, you know what? There's a lot of people out there making a lot of money and they're going to know here. They want to know her about this. They want to know about it. We taught about it. And then, you know, so I, I work with the attorneys that have been uh, creating this trust now for 70 years. And I just say, you know what? I'm very good on I have a great network. I can get this out there because at the very minimum, Anybody who does, a, who does a 1031 exchange is an idiot because with this trust, you as long as the, the property you're going you're, you're to sell is inside your trust as a trust asset, when you sell it, that money comes back into your trust with you as a trustee so you control everything. There's no capital gains. Wow. So instead of having to go through the torture of a 1031 exchange, you got to find a property. You got 45 days. Most of the time they don't fit, especially in a, in a hot market. Good luck finding a, a, a property that that is a good match. So either it's going to fall apart or you're going to have to pay what they call the boot, which is uh, whatever the difference is. You can't quite cover it. You're going to pay capital gains tax on that. So it's – and people do other stuff. I mean I've, I've talked to so many people that moved to freaking Puerto Rico because they, they were trying to avoid taxes. And so you know the the, the – process has been fascinating to show people, look, 
this tool has been around there for 70 years. You just don't know about it. Here's how it works. And then I go through and educate them. And I'm on all over social media and, and so on and, and educating people doing webinars and things like that. But ultimately, what is fascinating about this trust and the strategies that are that are that go along with it is that if you're in real estate investing, you don't need to do anything. You don't need to have any other structure except for this trust. You don't need LLCs. You don't need to do them in Wyoming or South Dakota or Nevada or whatever. None of that stuff is necessary because it can all be done inside your trust. And if you sell your property, no capital gains. If you have rent, rental income coming into the trust, no, no taxable event. Passive income is not a taxable event for this trust. So for me, it was a perfect fit because I've made a lot of money in real estate. I know exactly what that's like when you got to write those checks to the IRS every year. I also know what it's like to all cost, you know, have $5 million worth of liability insurance because you're afraid of getting sued. Because that's just, let's face it, we're in a litigious society and down here in Florida especially. So you're always worried about that. So now, you know, because everything's inside my trust and it has 100% asset protection against any kind of lawsuits, uh, it's just simplified things. And it's, it's like, I'm thinking, why would anybody else not do this? So it was almost like a mission type situation where I'm just getting the word out saying this, this is out there. This really works well. And uh, it's been great. In fact, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'll still do short sales, 100%. But it's been nice not have to deal with lenders, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> trust me, it is not easy to get those uh, SOBs to agree to a, you know, a $30,000, dollars $50,000 discount. You know, you got to work your butt off to get that. This is easier. So there's a million trusts out there, right? A lot of these different things. There's the provisions, there's the spendthrift clauses, all these different things. What specific trusts are you talking about? And how do we know which specific assets to put inside of that said trust? The official name is called a non-grantor, irrevocable, complex, discretionary spendthrift trust. So those <laughs> each one of those pillars means something and, it, and with the exception of the, of the spendthrift part which is asset protection non-grantor irrevocable complex discretionary those are absolutely 100 percent necessary to qualify for the part of the tax code that covers this type of trust which allows you to not to not have passive income be a taxable event which means that if, if you sell a trust asset it will not be any capital gains taxes on that transaction so uh, it's non-grantor, which means I did not create the trust myself. Somebody else created the trust. I'm the initial trustee. I have 100% control. I don't need to use a, have a third party to be the trustee of my trust. I am the third party the, you know, who runs the trust. It's irrevocable, which means all, any asset that, that I uh, want to get inside the trust, I have to sell it. Deed, bill of sale. Whatever it is, it could be real estate, it could be crypto, it could be precious metals, whatever it is, whatever asset you want to put it in there. So that becomes trust property. So you just can't use the trust as a holding pin to move stuff in and out. Once it's sold, it's sold irrevocably. You can sell it out, but it's now owned by the trust. I control it, but it's owned by the trust. It's complex, which means that the trust is not required to distribute to any beneficiaries. It's important because that's the part of the tax code that governs this trust requires that it not, it, the trust not be not not have to or be required to distribute to beneficiaries and discretionary. It has to be discretionary because the the, the trustee has to have 100 percent power 
um, to be in, in line with the tax code. So all that stuff comes together to be able to do what we do on the benefits side, which of course the biggest advantages from real estate investing is the, you know, no capital gains and no, no tax on rental income or passive income. Sure. So it sounds amazing, right? And obviously, you know, for some people it's amazing for other people it might not be. What are some of the drawbacks that we experience? Because I know that if you give like you have the control, but you give up pretty much everything to the trust, it's also like makes your life a little bit more complicated, I have to assume. Um, but those complications, the juice might kind of be worth the squeeze. So what, uh, what are some of the downsides? It's not as complicated as you think. And I'll tell you why. Because when you sell your, well, it depends on, on what you bring into it. Okay. So if you have, we already had property, we already had assets. So for us, it was a very easy transition. For people, it's, it's a little bit more cumbersome if you don't have any assets whatsoever. Uh, but for a lot of people, not taking distributions is a deal. Now, you can take the distributions, but they're going to be taxable. Okay, it's a taxable event. The way the way we run our trust is that nothing we do is a taxable event. So when I sell my assets into the trust, if I have an investment property and I want to sell it into the trust, so it becomes trust property. I have to do a deed and a bill of sale. So the trust has to provide some kind of monetary uh, compensation. Otherwise, it's not a legal sale. So instead of the trust paying money to us, they give us a note. It's kind of like seller financing in a sense. But so when we sold our assets, it was about $2.8 million, something like that. So now the trust owes us that money. But because we sold it to the trust, at a cost basis, which means whatever we whatever we acquired the asset at to begin with, and we add on any money that we spent on any improvements, and we subtract any depreciation that had been taken in previous tax years, whatever that amount is, that's the number on the bill of sale. So now the trust owes us that. So in our case, it's around $2.8 million, which means that we can draw upon that anytime we want tax-free. Because it's considered return of capital, it's not a taxable event. So the simplicity for in our case is that the trust can pay for a lot of expenses that I couldn't get away with in my S corp or my LLC. So I would say, you know, anecdotally speaking, maybe seventy-five to eighty-five percent of what we spend money on is considered trust expense, and the trust pays for it. Mm-hmm. But that 15 to 25% that cannot be considered a trust expense, what do you do with that? So in our case, all we do is I have a trust debit card as trustee. I control the bank account. So we spend every single dime on, with the trust debit card. So if let's say throughout the calendar year, maybe $60,000 of what we spend is not t- you know, uh, trust expenses, all my accountant is going to do is move that 60000 from the uh, on my chart of accounts in my QuickBooks from a trust expense over to the demand note and just reduces the demand note accordingly. Either way, it's not taxable. Mm-hmm. That's the beauty of it. Now, detriment if you're just starting out and you don't have any assets or you have very few assets, then you're not going to be able to have that leeway that we have because you, you know, you're going you're gonna to blow through your, your demand note. So in that case, what we advise people is you might want to have a, a secondary source of income to be able to cover that 15 to 25% that you can't, you know, that you can't draw from the demand note. 
So it just depends on where you're at and you're investing. But uh, if you're a good, if you're good and you're, you're energetic and you're out there and you're, 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 uh, you know, getting better and better and richer and richer, of course, then you're going to have more assets to go in and demand notes going to keep going up. And then you can start implementing it the way we do. Well, something that we always like highlight overarching point to make, I guess, is what the trusts give you as well as just you, you, you own nothing but control everything yes. in a way, right? Like you have that beneficial use of control, but mm-hmm. those dollars are all, those assets are off your personal balance yes. sheet, right? Which yes, is exactly. pretty cool. So if, you, if you're getting institutional financing, that's an issue. So for a lot of people, you know, for me as an investor, I created a network of investors to get my money to when I cashed out my properties. So I never have even tried to get institutional financing. Not even, not even hard money lenders. So that was never an issue for me, but there are people who do. And so right. that's a consideration that, that every single person who's contemplating getting this trust decides, do I keep everything in the trust? Do I keep certain things out? What's my number that I need to qualify? What's my income number that I have to show? What kind of assets do I need to show? And then, But I always say, look, it's your business, whatever you decide. But my advice is figure out those numbers just have those numbers and everything else put in. Sure, sure. And, and so a lot of our listeners are, are young business owners. They may have started their company with a laptop and a thousand bucks, right? I have a couple examples in mind, but just to go hypothetical, right? Let's say right. someone started an internet business. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they may have spent three grand on their, you know, their laptop right. and a couple other things. And now they're doing $3 million a year of revenue. Mm-hmm. There's a with a, with a strong multiple on the table and someone mm-hmm. buys their company for 10 million bucks. Like what's the, you know, the capital gains treatment in that world respect to just normal businesses outside of real estate. Does it, is there a difference or is it really yeah, the same it, idea and you can really implement trust planning? You can in any use it scenario? the same way. The only difference is that, and the same with me, because I don't, you know, yes, we had rental property and that was put in there, but for my business, my business was here. Right. I had systems. I knew how to do this. I had, you know, the whole nine yards. So I sold my intellectual and my physical assets into the trust. By far, most of my assets were intellectual property. So that's still monetizable. And you mm-hmm. got to look at, okay, so how much, how much is this worth, you know, compared to what your revenue is in your company? And you just, you literally, I mean, I've got operating manual, I've got, you know, goodwill, all this stuff is monetized and we, and we help people do that to where a certain amount of money is a certain amount of value is in that bill of sale that now the trust owns. So if I ever decided to sell my company, my trust would sell it to the end buyer as an asset sale. That would include my, 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 my brand, my goodwill, everything is sold as an, an asset sale to the end buyer. So the proceeds from the sale of my business would come into the trust, no capital gains. Who is this like, so like if I want to set this thing up, what, like who is the ideal archetype of person net worth wise, income wise, that should be looking into this? And what are the steps to actually getting it set up? Like talk us logistically through day one to actually setting this thing up. Anybody that once has assets to protect, number one, you always start with the asset protection because this this thing is so powerful, it can stop imminent domain lawsuits in their tracks. 
Okay, that's how powerful that spin through provision is. Case in point, O.J. Simpson. Before he was sued for wrongful death uh, and got those multi-million dollar judgments against him, he he sold all his assets into a trust with a spin through provision, and now no one can touch him. You know, right or wrong, it's just the law. So asset protection should always be a priority, but for the for the for the um, tax reduction, I have clients that are owner occupied. Excuse me, owner uh, operator truck drivers. They have one truck. They make maybe one thirty, one forty a year, but it's still worth it for them. And I have I have company owners that that, that are going to sell their their companies for fifty million dollars. So if you feel like you're paying too much in taxes and you're not a W-2 employee, then you can make this work. Just depends on what your situation is. But I would say W-2 employees, it's not really going to help you that much. Sure. But anybody who's you know 1099 or a business owner, man, this is the way to go from a tax reduction point of view. What, what are the steps to actually getting it set up? Like how much due diligence is required? Like how much paperwork? What's the length of the process? It's so, it's so simple. You, 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 uh, we get you an application. It's, it's not even an application, just an info sheet basically where it's uh, the, 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 the pertinent information that you need to give us, the law firm is going to create the trust, is who's going to be the initial trustee? Who's going to be the compliance overseer? Normally 98% of the time, it's the same person. That person, like for me, I'm compliance overseer and I'm trustee. So I have total control of the trust. I put down who my beneficiaries are going to be. So I have my wife, my two adult children, and my grandson. So I put that on there. I put down who's going to create the trust. In my, in my case, it was my, my realtor that did it for me. So he was the official creator of the trust. His Social Security was used to get the EIN number for my trust. So all he did was just create it officially, get the EIN number, and he was bye-bye. And then the trust is created without me, without my social. And now I, now I can be the trustee and control everything without being considered the grantor by the IRS, which would mm-hmm. make everything moot. They would not, they would we'd get zero tax reduction if that was the case. So that information is really what we need. You send it into us, you know, wire the, the funds. And then uh, the same day or the next day, the certification of trust is generated, the IA number is generated. At that point in time, that trust is created. And it'll take you, the, the law firm will take about three or four weeks to get you the actual trust book, but you can start you can start using it right away. That's how that's how easy it is. So so what mistakes do you see you know business owners making in this space, right? Because I think there's a lot of there's a lot of asset protection people out there mm-hmm. that are on TikTok or on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's just because it hits my algorithm because it's a part of our process with our clients hey, I'm there that too. we talk about. <laughs> but so, so we, the three of us for sure are constantly seeing people out there on TikTok and the YouTubes right. and the Instagrams of the world talking about different strategies. Mm-hmm. What are some red flags that you, sh- that you would, you know, advise people or at least give, you know, steer clear from and what are some mistakes you see people make? Cause I think a lot of business owners know they need to do trust planning, but just don't know where to go. Or, you know, there's a lot of noise as well. So there's I guess a lot maybe, of noise and there's a yeah. lot of really, there's products out there that really don't do the job mm. and they're actually, you can get in trouble. You gotta be very careful. I examples. Well, for example, I mean, there's a, there's a couple of things out there with these quote unquote express trusts. They're just saying, okay. Hey, you know, thousand dollars, $1,500, you know, get a trust and then you're not going to be able to, you know, no taxes. The same thing I'm talking about, but it's not based on anything. It's not, it's not based on, on the tax code. It's just, you know, they're, Count on the fact that 
statistically speaking, maybe 1% of the trusts are audited every year. They're just rolling the dice. Okay. Mm. They're being told you have a trust, but I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be audited. If that's the case. So there's a lot of that out there. So people, trust are now hot. Everybody's, they're, they're talking about them. And sometimes people make the mistake of believing, well, I want to go price shopping. This is the one thing you don't want to price shop on, <laughs> you know? And so for me, I mean, my due diligence, I wanted to go with something with a track record. And the fact that the attorneys have had this for 70 years, the fact that it was copyrighted, it was the very first trust to be copyrighted in 2002, the fact that the IRS vetted it, the fact that the IRS issued a private finding letter specifically about how this trust works with, you know, the tax, part of the tax code that governs this. And frankly, the fact that um, 80,000 people have become trust clients with this trust, the, the track record, the, the, um, the documentation, it was just, there's no, no other, no other uh, place has that. Hmm. But we do lose a lot of clients to people who say, well, I just don't want to, I'm going to go with a cheaper round. I'm going to say, well, good luck. You know, good luck. Yeah. I wouldn't risk it. 100% I would not risk it. Yeah, this is one of those scenarios where you really don't want to jump over $5 bills to grab pennies, I like to say. Yeah, you know, not. It's something not to take lightly. Um, yeah, 100%. So so what about, I, I guess, what when it comes to spendthrift provisions, this is my last specific question that mm -hmm. I'm curious about. You know, there's irrevocable trusts combined with a spendthrift provision. There's some people out there, I, I think I've heard that have say, you can only do that in certain states. There's other states where you have to do different strategies and whatnot. How much does state matter? How much does the state that you're in matter with your trust planning? Doesn't matter for this trust at all. It can be done in all 50 states. Okay. This trust is not required to be registered with any state. Okay. So this trust, so, you know, I have my company's called HB Funding. If you go on sunbiz.org, you're going to find me. It's all out there. Everything's there. This trust, my trust, you're not going to find it at all because it's not registered with the state of Florida. It doesn't have to be. So if we, in Florida, we don't have a state income tax, but I have a lot of clients, especially ones in, in New York. I was talking to a guy today. He's, he's a, a trader. He does a lot of trading and, and he does real estate investing. He just says, man, I'm getting killed on the, on the state taxes. And I was like, well, you don't have to anymore on this because, you know, you're, you're, um, it's not required to be registered with the state at all. So uh, as far as the spendthrift thing goes, the, the spendthrift provision is, is good in any, in any state. There's not an issue there with this trust. Awesome. I mean, this is uh, super tactical, but those that are in need of this stuff need to hear it. Um, yeah. It'll go over the heads of 90% of our listeners, but the few that actually are in need, this is millions upon millions of dollars of savings over time. Oh, my uh, gosh. So, well, I mean, I've I got a, this stuff. I've got a client that is selling his dental practice, and he was on the hook for five million dollars on capital gains. Zero now. So where where do other capital gains mitigation strategies come into play? Because as we're doing some some mitigation strategies for clients, there's also like charitable remainder unit trusts, or mm -hmm. there's also qualified opportunity zones. Like, how do we identify where we want to put a portion of the sale. Like, so like before we're selling, we're going to move some of the shares of that asset into specific things that aren't going to be, um, you know, they're an exempt of capital gains. How do we decide where we want to chop that up? Well, my answer would be, you don't even need to do a lot of stuff. 
you know, I mean, why would you want to, why would you want to, I mean, people will talk about, you know, they're going to Puerto Rico, they're putting their money into uh, opportunity zones. Yeah. Freeze it for 10 years. Do you want to freeze it for 10 years? Do you want to put it into a, you know, a deferred sales trust, or do you want to put it in a, a Delaware statutory trust where you have third parties and control your money and you have, you know, um, no way to get to it and you're, you're going to pay capital gains eventually. You just you kick it down the road. Why do that when all you have to do is just, you know, sell your corporate assets into the trust and then sell it as an asset sale. Then you're, then you're, you're golden. Why don't people know about this? Because it was a niche product for decades. The, I'll give you a quick, quick history there. The professor Austin Scott is considered the godfather, the OG, if you want to, if I use a kid term uh, of trust. Any, any law, any law school worth its salt has tr uh, Scott on trust law. And that's, that is the Bible of trust law. Robert Benson was the original partner of this trust. Uh, and he was one of the, the main author that was, that was, um, it was copyrighted. He worked under, he was a student under Professor Scott at Harvard and he taught under, under Professor Scott. And then he went on, you know, he went off on his own. He decided he wanted to, he wanted to focus, his niche was going to be in the oil, gas, and mineral rights sector. And so he moved to Houston, and that's where he set up his, his practice. So if you weren't in, you know, that field, you were never going to hear about it. Okay? So when they when they they copyrighted it in the early 2000s, and the, the law firm decided they were going to make it available or let people know about it, to use it in a much wider way than what they were doing with strictly oil, gas, and, and mineral rights um, royalties. So it's just been slowly but surely over, and sorry for calling you Shirley, uh, they've been, uh, you know, uh, the word's getting out. And so it's exploded in the last year, exploded in the last year. But that's why. Because if you weren't in that field, that niche, you wouldn't have known about it. For somebody who's like on the brink of selling, maybe there's a you know, there's an LOI to sign and there's like, basically things are at the goal line. Is this too late to start? Like, is there a statute you know, of limitations? Is there no, like you a can still do it. You just, you're, if you're under contract, you're going to have to get an addendum from the buyer, allowing you to change the name because you're physically going to have to deed the, deed the assets over to the trust. And mm. so, but mo you know, most time buyers don't care. They're going to get the same price. There's no problem with that. But obviously, you know, if you, if you've already sold your business and your SOL, that's not going to work. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, Don, we could talk about this till we're blue in the face. This is awesome. And I think there's going to be a lot of synergy over time with, uh, you know, the, so. the niche of clients that we work with are mm -hmm. in demand for things like this. So um, is there anything that you want to leave our listeners off with? And lastly, how can they follow you and, and consume some of the content? Well, um, you can follow me. I'm on the, I'm big on TikTok. Um, you know, my hashtag is, you know, at Ironclad Trust. That's my, that's my hashtag there. That's probably the big, I mean, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, the whole nine yards, but that's really where I get most residents of my, of my content is on TikTok. But honestly, just reach out to me. You know, if you have clients, obviously get in touch with me. If you're just out there watching this, uh, I'll give my cell phone number 407-902-7827. I mean, I've had that same, you know, same phone since I started in 2022 or 2002, I should say. And I run my business through my phone. So you know, send me a text. And we'll talk. Awesome. Don, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you, man. No problem. Oh, man. Thank you.